Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. Hey, I have a question. Why don't businesses champion low-skilled immigration? Is it because economic globalization has enabled firms to produce offshore with cheap labor so that they have no call for it at home? That's the argument of trading barriers by Maggie Peters, who's associate professor at UCLA. And this is perhaps the best political science book that I've read in the past couple of years. It's incredibly profound. It's methodologically rigorous. Continually testing the data. So this is a gigantic delight. Maggie, welcome. Wow, thank you. That was quite a welcome. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Okay, so to explain hostility to immigration, many scholars have looked at the determinants of voters' preferences, you know, whether it's about local economic conditions, job losses, austerity, trade show. But in your book, you're saying, whoa, 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 let's take a step back and you explore a different hypothesis. Yeah, so when I looked at the literature and these explanatory factors, it always focused on the side of people who don't like immigration. And yet had this idea that the side that does like immigration, which was mostly focused on business, just always liked it Mm -hmm. and had totally Mm -hmm. static Mm -hmm. preferences. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that seems weird. (laughs) Yes. To think that any group has totally static preferences over something. And so I started to think about what might have been changing in the world in the last 200 years that might have affected business preferences. And of course, the big thing that jumps out is globalization. Yeah. So if you think about it, if we think back to the 19th century, when most countries um, had much more open immigration policies. So that was, you know, the era where anybody could get on a boat from Europe mostly, but also from other places and come to the United States, or go to Canada, or Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Brazil, all of Latin America, or even within Europe. You could get, you could move pretty easily between states uh, within Europe in the 19th century, no matter how skilled you were, um, no matter where you were coming from, more or less. But then we see today, and we think about the rise of visas, we think about the rise of restrictions, increasing restrictions, and wondering kind of what happened. So yeah. businesses, are like we typically think of businesses interest being as super powerful in the world and yet if they want immigration and they're super powerful then why aren't they getting it yes they, honestly this has genuinely puzzled me right so then i said well maybe because businesses benefit from cheap labor right. businesses want cheap labor <laughs> so why don't they want low-skilled immigration right. and so you know it's not that they're not powerful what i argue in the book is that they don't need it as much. I think they would welcome it, but they just don't need it as much as they once did and so choose to think about other issues. So why don't they need it? Well, a couple reasons. One, um, trade has, as we know, has fundamentally changed the developed, advanced developed economies. So once upon a time, we used to manufacture lots and lots of things in the United States. We still manufacture lots and lots of things, but we do it with much fewer fewer workers Mm -hmm. and we do it with much more technology. Yes. Um, Because the factories that used a lot of workers um, simply closed because they couldn't compete. You know, they couldn't compete with Dominican Republic. They couldn't compete with Mexico. They couldn't compete with China. They can't compete with Vietnam, Bangladesh, Cambodia, all those different places. And so those companies just closed, and they were the ones who were employing a lot of the immigrant labor. Mm. And so once they closed, they, they just don't exist to push for it any longer. Other companies can take their, their workers, or other companies choose to increase their productivity levels by increasing technology so they don't need as many workers. Or if you're a really big company and you can afford to do it, you move overseas. Right. Um, or you, you, know, you outsource, or you in fact move yourself. So economic globalization enables firms to have another way of getting cheap labor. By exactly, offshoring. by offshoring. Mm. Um, or they just decide they don't want labor at all, 
all and move to, you know, having the robots do the jobs. So your hypothesis is that once firms are able to, once your national policies change enabling firms to move offshore, then those particular firms, those particular sectors are less likely to lobby for low-skilled immigration back home. Correct. Yeah. So once they move, they don't care. Right. Okay. So one thing I think what I really love about your book is that you say, okay, well, let's imagine all the different kinds of data and methods I could use to investigate that question. And let me imagine all the different worlds in which I might be wrong and what those worlds would look like if X does not cause Y. Um, so you, you have, the, like, I guess, so you have, first of all, you look at the cross-national regressions of trade openness and migration policies, and I want to talk about that. And then you look at firm lobbying and sectoral variation. Then you look at the qualitative process tracing in two case studies. Can you tell me, um, let's start off with the cross-national regressions of immigration policies and uh, of trade open, uh, yes, of trade and immigration. Tell me what, well, how, how you set that up, the data set, because this is your unique original data set. Yeah, tell me about this. Yeah, so um, when I started getting interested in studying migration policy, mm. it turns out there's like no data. Right. Uh, unfortunately, there's no easy off-the-shelf data that I could just take and test mm. my hypotheses. So first I had to create that data. So um, what I did is I went back and forth, and actually I thought about using, you know, migrant flow data. That has some problems, that then you have to think about what is the demand to migrate, not just the supply right. of opportunities. Sure. But also it turns out governments have not kept really good data on flows over time. Oh, okay. So that was a bummer. Mm. And so then I said, well, what we do know is we have pretty good records on the laws that governments have passed. Mm. And so we can collect data on that. So I went away for two years while I was working on my dissertation or so and, and did just that. Collected a huge amount of data going back historically on what sort of laws um, different states pass during which time my advisors were like, are you working? Are you working? Are you working? Mm. And I was like, yes, I promise I'm working. And so then, you know, I I figured out all of these different ways of thinking about immigration policy. Mm. So you have policies that discuss who can enter the border. Mm. So there are policies that focus on it by nationality, by skill level. Are we thinking about economic migrants Mm. or are we thinking about refugees or asylum seekers? Mm. And you have all these different levers Mm. that policymakers Mm. can move just to about who gets in the the country. Then you have policies that affect what rights immigrants get. Yes. So can you become a citizen or um, can you access the welfare state or in like the 19th century, can you buy land? Can you start a business? Can you have schooling in your language or in your religion or that that sort of issues? And David LeBlanc at Virginia's work um, along with co-authors shows that more rights tends to attract more workers or more immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so rights is another lever that states of mm-hmm. course can use. Mm-hmm. And then finally we have to think about border enforcement um, of these laws because you could have on your books a really really strict law and then not enforce it. Yeah, you turn a blind eye. Yeah, and then it's just the same as having a very yes, open yes, law. Yes, um, And so you have to think about what is the level of enforcement mm. that goes on to. So you put all these things together. Yes. You create an um, an index. Yes. Um, of these policies. And then you've after you've spent two years of work, you're like, God, I really hope that this shows out my hypothesis, because mm. otherwise that's going to be a huge yeah. bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and so then what I use is thinking about, okay, what's our long-term trade data that we have? It's tariffs, because mm. that's what governments cared about yes. and collected information on. So I looked at, over the long period of time, about the tariff levels. And what you find is this really strong negative relationship between trade openness 
whether you do it with tariff levels or then later with these measures of non-tariff barriers and immigration openness. So that was really exciting. But of course, that's just a correlation. Yes. But, the, but, but, but let's just restate that for the listeners. So, the, the, so, so this quantitative data is suggesting that when governments... Open, uh, when governments reduce tariffs, then they're much more stringent on immigration. Right. Okay, so that's the big takeaway. But what we don't know, that doesn't prove that it's a causal relationship, that it's the companies ceasing to lobby for low-skilled immigration. We don't know that. Correct. So then I was like, okay, we got that part of it. Now let's figure out that it's actually the companies that are doing that. Yes, because there could be other causes, it right? There could be plenty of other causes yeah. out there in the world. It could be something to do about other sort of economic flows. Yes, it yes. could be labor unions. It could be anything. Yes. <clears throat> so then um, I said, okay, we got to go to the sectoral level. Yes. Um, and so I th- thought about collecting different types of data yes. um, at the sectoral level. Like, ideally, you would have exact data mm. on which companies are lobbying for exactly what they're lobbying on, who they're lobbying to, yes. and how much they're spending on it. Yes. Alas, we do not have that data. So Congress only started really making companies um, lobbyists register as yes. lobbyists in the mid-1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always, there started a problem for me because I'm interested in these long-term yes, of globalization yes, yes. factors. And by 1998, that horse has already left the barn mm. in the United States in many ways. Um, I still use that data, mm. but, you know, it's not as long of a time period. It's not um, as quite as much, nor is it exactly what you want, because mm. companies or lobbyists just report, like, we spent, maybe they report, like, the total dollar amount, or they say around this much, but then they could say, like, we've spent it on all these, you know, 75 different issues, and they just say, like, we lobbied Congress the end like mm. nobody not more data on who they talk mm. to you mm. not more data on like sometimes they would write we're really interested in like you know this bill or that bill but often it was just like immigration nothing more than mm. that so you're sort of inferring from the data that like okay they're they're going in the pro direction mm. or in the negative direction mm. and so that was the best mm-hmm. you could do so then i thought well what are other long-term measures of how businesses here in the u.s interact with the government yeah try to lobby for different policies yeah so one thing we can look at is congressional testimony which of course has all these stages that like you have to know somebody to get invited um and congress people are going to invite people who already show the position that they want yes so you have to think about how all that is going to affect all that sort of selection effect yes and would happen and affect your data yes um, but nonetheless, what I find with that is that businesses used to show up to testify or submit a submission into the congressional record way more often um, back in the 1950s, which is as far back as the data goes right now, um, than they do today. On average now, there's maybe one, two businesses that show up per congressional hearing on immigration. Um, and of those businesses, there's maybe maybe one but often zero from a tradable industry. Most of the people who are showing up um, these days are either from the service sector, or if it is a tradable industry, it's probably agriculture, which um, has other issues in terms of moving in that you cannot move Napa Valley. Yeah, right, right, right. So, you know, there's things like that that you just cannot move. 
um, that even if though it's a tradable industry and you think maybe it yes. could be mobile, there are parts of agriculture that are definitely mobile, but there's parts of it that are just not mobile. So firms that are employing low-skilled labor, it seems like over the past 60 years, they've ceased to lobby for low-skilled immigration. Right. But with the caveats that the people who that congressional testifying is only one example of lobbying right. and that a lot of it is going to be uh, campaign contributions and also the people who testify, may just it may just be a reflection of politicians wanting some want to justify what they already want right. which could be coming from the voters but still so this isn't a conclusive thing but it's some indication right. that firms are doing it less some indication and so then i also picked three sort of representative industries yes and looked at what the industries are telling themselves and their members yes so the three industries i picked was the textile industry um and i actually looked at this in the earlier era of what I call Americanization of mm -hmm. the economy, mm -hmm. um, where it, the U.S. went from being several regional economies to being one national economy mm -hmm. in a very similar manner as globalization. Um, so these were Northeast textile manufacturers who, when you think about, like, where did your Irish grandmother come off the boat or great-grandmother come off the boat and work, you think about, like, oh, she worked in a textile factory. Or at least yeah. that is my yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, impression is mm -hmm. lots and lots of textiles employed lots and lots of immigrant, especially immigrant mm, women, mm. Um, in the Northeast mm. during the late 1800s and the yeah. early, throughout the 1800s and through the early 20th century. And what happened uh, around this time period is you start to have the economic development of the U.S. South that has much lower labor costs and has many more workers um, who are coming um, off of agriculture. Um, and are building new factories and the new factories are using the latest technology and blah 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 that are out competing the northern manufacturers mm. and whereas once it was sort of expensive to ship those goods back to the northern mm. markets it's become with railroads and things like that increasingly very inexpensive to do that so it's very much like a similar type yes, process yes, as to globalization yes. so increasingly some of these firms in these textile organizations are just closing their doors some of these firms are moving south mm. Um, and some of them are trying to become more productive. A couple of them st stick around and invest in technology. Mm -hmm. Most of them either just move production south or just decide to close their doors and, like, basically pull out as much as they can from the mm -hmm. factory for as long as they can mm -hmm. and then just shutter the mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And so you see over time as this is happening, their rhetoric going from being, you know, supportive of immigration while still saying terrible things about immigrants and like how they're not very good workers mm -hmm. and it'd be better to have native workers and also using like all sorts of ethnic slurs to, like in their papers towards immigrants so it's not like these folks are kindly wonderful people who love immigrants mm -hmm. they totally think of them as just as workers mm -hmm. um to saying by the end not really talking much about immigration focusing much more on um trying to how the best to pull um value out of your factory what are productivity enhancements that could matter and just not really even caring about immigration when it does come up in right the right um so it seems like in the textile industry, firms appear to care less about immigration. Right. So that's a nice way of tri triangulating your data on congressional testifying. Because yeah. that data might be biased by the selection effect, right. whereas this is firms thinking about what matters to yeah. them. And it, it seems that within the textile industry, immigration is less important to them. Right, yeah. got you. 
And then as a counterpoint, we can look at the total opposite and look at agriculture. Yes. So I looked at agriculture in California, which is still heavily reliant on an immigrant workforce. Yes. Um, and has a lot of crops you just simply cannot you cannot create a robot yet that can pick a good tomato. You cannot make a robot who can pick strawberries. Mm. All these sorts of tasks that can no longer be done or cannot be done by technology and that you still want to do in the United States. Because, because the agriculture, the, yeah, the soil, soil the climate. The, the yeah. climate's mm. perfect. Um, some of these stuff are, you know, more delicate. You can't ship it quite as far. All of those sorts mm. of issues. Mm. Um, and so there you see continued support for immigration, continued lobbying on immigration, continued discussions about the importance of immigration, the importance of immigration legislation, the, you know, for the last 20 some odd years, uh, much ink spilled about being sad that they haven't gotten a better agricultural workers program through Congress, um, and all these sorts of issues. So this this data is useful in helping us think that economic globalization could be affecting firm preferences and then immigration because it's saying the firms that can't move are the ones that really want immigration. Yeah. So therefore, why we see uh, less business support is because those who care about it, yeah, as, as it's a growing. smaller and smaller yes, coalition. Yes, yes, yes. I'm with you, Maddie. I'm with you. Yes. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, so you just see the farmers still, mm. they, they care as much about immigration today as they did mm, back as in they the ever 1940s did. Right, and right. the 1930s. Got you, got you. They don't really change mm, that much. Mm, mm. Okay, um, and so, so you did this, you did this, and you also looked at steel. Right. Tell me about steel. So steel's interesting because it's, um, again, it's an industry when we think back to the growth of America was a place that had lots and lots of immigrant workers uh-huh, uh-huh. in it. Um, steel is interesting because it goes through this like post-war collapse in the United States, um, and yet it's been revived. We produce as much steel as we once did, mm. um, but we do it with like a tenth of the workforce mm. because what has done, what has happened, is that we've had all these productivity enhancements and these different types. Basically, like a lot of steel comes through recycling now that just doesn't need as much as labor is not as hard. And so what you just see is that these steel companies just really don't care at all mm-hmm. about immigration um, after the collapse of the 1960s. Oh, right. Okay, okay. Um, they, they never talk about it. They don't lobby on it. Um, so it's just sort of interesting that here's, again, an, an industry that prototypically was an immigrant-heavy industry. Yes. Which, in this case, mostly what is... So in textiles, mostly what has happened to textiles in the United States is that they're not produced here. Um, if, only very high-end textiles. Okay, so wait, part. let me let me gather my thoughts here. Yeah. Okay, so of the data we've got so far, <coughs> we've got this association between trade between trade between tariffs and immigration policy and stringent application okay. of that. Right. Even if the firms are less concerned about it, this doesn't show that it's the firm lobbying or lack thereof that's driving the change. You know, firms right. could just incidentally can care about it. That doesn't show that they're powerful actors, to go back to your beginning right. point, right? So how do we know, how can we show causally that it's firm lobbying driving it? So I have two different strategies for that. I have a strategy for everything, I think. Keep going. Um, like Elizabeth Warren, hey? Yes, exactly. I have a, I have a plan for that. Um, yeah, right. I, would love, I always love to compare to Elizabeth Warren. She's amazing. Um, so... So, two different strategies. Yes. So, I look at um, voting on immigration in the Senate in the mm. United States. And you might say, like, how does that show causality? Mm. Well, I draw on these two different time periods. Mm. So, prior to um, World War II, mm. where 
it really focused on this Americanization mm, of the U.S. Mm, economy, mm, mm. whereby you had gone from having the U.S. is a really big country. We have many different regions. Mm. They were not all connected by nice transportation links like mm. they are now. Mm. You just had much more regionalization, mm. and so products for the foreign market got produced in that market. Mm. But what you have, you know, first with thinking about the railroads. That, well, actually, going back all the way to, like, the canal system and then the railroads mm. and then um, increasing uh, communication links, the telegraph, mm, then mm. the telephone. Yes. Um, you also have a managerial revolution that yes. allows you to co- figure out how to control agents farther apart. Yeah, yeah. And so what you have is a system whereby um, you have these, like, regional economies that don't have a lot of competition from other economies starting to see more and more competition. And what was the low-wage economy, as I mentioned before, was the U.S. South, where the U.S. South finally becomes integrated into the rest of the U.S. economy. It gets rail links, and it starts to industrialize Mm. um, in the post-Civil War, later 19th century, Mm. early 20th Mm. century period. And they have cheap labor for all sorts of historical reasons. Um, And so companies increasingly move their production there. And they don't need immigrant workers in the South. Um, and the factories in the North are sort of still sort of like begging for immigrant workers, the ones that are like hanging on. But increasingly they're like, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's right. just go South. And so as you see that shift southwards, you see less and less support from Northern senators for... Oh, how interesting. So what you're doing really is just showing that what you're hypothesizing about at the international level is also playing out um, through that regionalization. Right. And the thing about that's nice about the regionalization is, so yes, the Senate had some amount of control over some federal spending. We did actually spend a huge amount of federally Mm. um, or on these big infrastructure developments. A lot more was done with sort of private or state money. Yes. Um, and so the Senate has some control over this yes. process, but not a huge amount. Yeah. And so they sort of are reactive to the process mm. rather than driving the process, where, you, as you would think, are links to the international economy during this time period um, with, with tariffs and trade were still very much controlled by the House of Representatives mm. and the Senate. And so there we might think that senators could be there could be some spurious reason that's driving both their votes, or they could be actually moving trade in hopes of restricting mm, immigration or something mm, like that. Mm, mm. So this sort of gets us around those yes. problems, because they're not actually able to control this regionalization very much. No, okay, okay. Right, right. now now tell me about the process tracing. Because so, what yeah. I love here, what I love here, Mackie, is that I think a lot of uh, papers in political science will just say, right, I want to demonstrate something uh, with methodological rigor, so I'll look for a really nice data set that's totally yeah. perfect and that's totally great, and I'll just show something. And that finding does not matter at all. Like, it's a totally, like, in my mind, pointless finding, but it's methodologically neat. Right. And I like to think of it as methodological dressage, that they're just showing some fancy footwork. But what you've got here is this huge question, you know, how does uh, trade openness affect immigration policy? Now that's a big question. Now let me attack it in loads of different ways, right. and all and none of these things will totally get at, get us at it. But they can they can shed light on what's going on, and right. I love it. I I am so for it. I think this is absolutely the kinds of research that we should be doing. We should identify the question that matters, and then trying to find research that helps us answer the important questions, not the other way around. Right. Being guided by, oh, here's some nice data. Let me you know do some derivative yeah, no, questions. Yeah, I mean you always have this problem. Mm. Um, 
in social sciences mm. where of like internal versus external validity. Like you can have a really, really nice RCT, but that's usually over a small population mm. in one country typically, although there are some cool studies that are trying to do this like across countries. Mm. Um, but then sometimes they find different effects mm. when they go across countries, um, which is really great. But then, of course, reviewer two is like, well, what about the external validity, mm-hmm. right? Um, or we can go, like IR had been for a long time, of like, okay, we do these big cross-national aggressions, and then reviewer two is like, everything's endogenous, right? Mm. So how do you think about pulling these parts together yes. to say, I can show you where it's more internally valid, but, you know, this is just for the United States, or I can show you where it's more externally valid, but maybe you have these endogeneity concerns. Yes. But I think if you bring a lot of evidence together, you can say, like, look, the evidence together shows that I'm most likely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know. So let's make the case that Maggie's most likely right. You go to Singapore. Right. Tell because, me about Singapore. You know, so I've been looking, most of the subnational data mm. was at this. Um, it was about the United States. The mm. United States is a weird place. Mm. I know, like, we always joke in IP that we're like, start with a small open economy. Now I'm going to study the United States. And mm. you're like, it's neither small nor fully open. So let's actually go to a small open economy, mm. Mm. but one that's an autocracy. Yes. Um, and so one place where we might think that politics works very differently, and in, in some ways politics is even more pro-business. For in, sure. In For Singapore. Sure. I mean, the Singaporean government has its hands in all sorts of businesses, um, a lot of the people who become members of parliament or who are part of the People's Action Party, the PAP, come out of business. It's really sort of symbiotic relationship yes, between yes, government yes. and business. Mm. So you would think if any place, if businesses had power, yes. it should be in Singapore. And I think that is true. That mm-hmm. Business has a lot of power in Singapore. And yet what you find is the same relationship going on. So I thought, you know, this is interesting. Let me go figure mm. out what's mm. going on. Mm. And, you know, part of it is that the Singaporean government has to respond to the average person as much as everybody else does. And so isn't totally free to do what business Mm. wants. But part of it is that the Singaporean government has had this strategy throughout its, you know, basically since independence Mm. of we have to continually upskill. We're a small island nation. We have to provoke. We can't do ISI. They were Mm. never going to be able to do um, import substitution industrialization for those of you who are not IPE nerds they could never do that they had to go and go for the export market but they realized even for going to the export market they're still small they're not going to beat their neighbors Malaysia or Indonesia or later on China so they have to keep going up the value chain yes and so when they thought about that they kept thinking about like what businesses are in some ways holding us back um, businesses are constantly feeling this pressure from places like Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, you know, Taiwan, that have more and more people. And so part of the development strategy of upscaling, they want to get rid of these low-skilled businesses. And so to some extent, they cut immigration to make these businesses move. But then they also do a lot of things to incentivize low-skilled manufacturing to move. So what they want is to keep the design and the headquarters in Singapore, but want the manufacturing elsewhere. So they sign all these agreements with Malaysia and Indonesia. They create these like business parks right across the border. Um, and so as these um, 
firms move out, they just don't have to worry about immigration quite as much as they once did. Yeah, so the government's basically forcing a high-wage economy in order to increase uh, incentivize productivity and technology right. and upgrading. So, but if your wages are really high, then firms will invest right. in innovation, etc. But also, like, helping firms invest in this. Yeah. But they, they get into this, like, you know, we should even have robots in the food service business. And then they find out, like, robots are not actually as good at, you know, doing what they need to do. Um, and so all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then you also look at the Netherlands. Right, so that was an autocracy, so let's look at yeah. a democracy. Oh, and, and uh, sorry, I should have said the big important point about uh, Singapore is that you're also testing alternative hypotheses. Right. And from Singapore, you can see that it's not other explanations, like it's not organized labor, for example, because no. that just is. Because that is not a thing. <laughs> that is not a thing. <laughs> that is not. Organized labor is not a thing. Yeah. There's probably some amount of like nativism mm. that affects it because as much as. Singapore has this sort of like identity as a multicultural society. They still have sort of like this idea that because of the ethnic riots that happened in Malaysia, that was part of the reason they left the Malaysian, mm-hmm. the Malay Federation, they worry about the ethnic composition and moving it too much yes. in any one direction. Although some people argue the PAP is like very pro Chinese, um, which I think there's some support for mm-hmm. that. Um, so they worry about having too many people from other mm-hmm. ethnicities and, and have that sort of, like, nativism in a bit. Um, but it's definitely not labor moving it. It's yeah. not the fiscal costs either because, like, these migrants are not allowed to, like, have anything from right, yeah, the no. state. So, right, now let's, now let's move on to the Netherlands. So Netherlands, super strong labor country. Yes. Labor unions are pretty strong. Um, also undergoing this process of globalization. Yes, yes. Um, it's interesting because it has the rise of the far right mm. in the 1990s, all those sorts of things that might be affecting things. So there I do the same sort of process tracing of finding out how the economy has changed. You lost things like shipbuilding that was once a really important industry that employed yeah, yeah. a lot of immigrants. You had a lot of other immigrants in manufacturing. You had them sign all these guest worker treaties with like Morocco and other countries mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. But as, you know, in part, you know, joining the EU, but also like all other countries getting hammered by just greater globalization, they lose those same industries and with it goes the support for immigration, except for, again, in these industries like tulips, big industry in in Holland, uh, mushrooms and other Mm -hmm. agricultural products. Um, But even those industries today can access not as cheap labor as they might get from outside the EU, but can at least access cheaper labor from within the EU. So they can, you know, bring in Romanians, Bulgarians, Poles, um, who are more willing to take a lower wage and work in those sectors. I'm with you. So this process tracing in two different countries, the Netherlands and Singapore, helps complement and triangulate the other kinds of data and methodology. So out of this, you can take a step back and say, well, it looks like different aspects of economic openness affect each other. And we can do that by, and we can know this by looking at sectoral differences. We can know this by looking at congressional lobbying. We can do that, know this by looking at cross-national regressions and the process traits. Right. And I think that's such an inspirational story for any young political science or social scientist student starting out. Like, let me start with my big question that matters and let me think of a whole host of methodologies that would help me get a sense of what's going on here. I mean, what, what advice do you have for people? You know, because yeah, yeah, for testing the data, what, what sort of generic advice can you share with us? 
Yeah, yeah. So my generic advice yes. um, is is to sort of do what I did. Um, yes. In that, you know, think about what are all the different ways in which okay, if you're right, what you might see in the world. Yes. So, um, I'll give a great plug for my grad student Lauren Pinson, um, who's on the job market right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can hire her. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's interested in whether or not states choose to crack down on illicit markets like mm-hmm. drugs. Mm-hmm. And small arms, mm. which is extremely hard to study because, you know, these are illegal things. So we don't have great data yeah, on it. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, what she's been working on is some of this process tracing, some of these, like, I- interviews with elites, thinking about how um, individuals might think about whether or not their government should be cracking down and doing surveys in places like Mexico mm-hmm. about individual mm-hmm. attitudes, mm-hmm. looking at subnational data in Mexico, mm-hmm. and then also having some big cross-national data. Um, so just trying to get at, like, look, this is a really big, hard question. It doesn't have perfect data, but I think I can see, you know, what can I get from this case study? What might be another interesting case study? What cases can we pair together? Um, it's frame. Mm-hmm. Okay, Maggie, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to take yeah. away from the book and the podcast. One, forms of economic openness affect each other, and we need to recognize and we need to explore in those. Two, if you're interested in social science questions, identify a question that matters, and then by all means necessary, just from attack it from every angle. Right. And imagine the world in which you're wrong. Imagine what kind of data could indi- indicate that you're wrong, and go out and hunt for that data in all its forms and with any methodology. Mm-hmm. Identify the big question and then collaborate um, and learn from diversity so that you can tackle shared concerns. Right. Yes. Yeah. Maddie, I love it. Thank you so much. You're welcome.